He is absolutely tearing up the Pyrenees like a man possessed. Tour de Pharmacy is a mockumentary about the Tour de France, a fake 30 for 30 about the 1982 Tour de France. It was made by Murray Miller and Andy Samberg, and among a whole host of other people wearing bad wigs and retro cycling gear, professional wrestling star John Cena. What's a man that huge doing in a cycling movie, you ask? It'll be clear enough in a minute, I promise. Just bear with me. How do you beat a man on drugs if you're not on drugs? Wait, did you just admit to being on drugs? The story is improbable enough. When a bribery scandal eliminates all but five competitors who did not pay off officials, race officials allow the five remaining racers to compete by themselves. The five all have their own equally absurd stories. One is a woman racing as a man. Another rides away from the race altogether to be a farmer. One is disqualified after a police raid reveals he's been injecting himself with cheetah's blood. That's John Cena's part. We told you it made sense, and that it seemed improbable. Or, more accurately, it seems improbable if and only if someone doesn't know the actual history of the Tour de France, which involves people doing things that are actually much worse. Riders have taken steroids, amphetamines, and a list of other drugs so long it's frankly confusing. Name it. Strychnine, morphine, cocaine, ether, at one point in the 1990s, a group of riders had a courier caught with a vial full of a chemical used to coat nonstick pans in their arsenal. They weren't doing any cooking. That was supposed to go into the riders' bodies. At one point in the blood doping era of the 1990s, some riders were waking up during the night to climb steps and get their heart rates up. Why? Allegedly, team doctors were afraid their blood thickened to the point of being sludgy would settle and clog up their circulatory systems. Early in the tour's history, riders caught trains to make up time. They pounded brandy and wine on the bike well into the 1960s, and they carried water bottles full of lead handed to them on mountain passes to increase their speed downhill. This is all to say, there are sporting events where people try to get an edge, bend the rules, or maybe even outright cheat. And then, above them all, there's the Tour de France. It is the champion in this category, and everything else is playing for second place. There's so much that I'm going to need two parts, just to get a little bit of it in, because it's been going on that long. Long enough that we have to start in 1903, with its first winner, Maurice Garin, to get to the origins of the tour's desperate and often inventive penchant for cutting corners. I'm Spencer Hall, and from Vox Media and SB Nation, this is It Seems Smart, a podcast about people in sports who break, bend, or otherwise ignore the rules completely. Part 1. The Man Who Was Sold for a Wheel of Cheese. The first thing to know about Maurice Garin, his parents sold him into indentured servitude when he was a child. Cycling historian Peter Cossens, whose latest book is How the Race Was Won, Cycling's Top Minds Reveal the Road to Victory, says Garin was traded into contractual labor for the most French price imaginable. His mum and dad, so the legend goes, swapped him for a, for a big piece of cheese. They sold him to some 
some, I guess, what were the equivalent of people smugglers back then. By the time he was 15, Garan worked as a chimney sweep. He rode his bike around his village, at first for transport, but later for leisure. Bikes in the late 19th century in France were big business. Not many people could afford cars, and in a country with a huge working class and an improving road system, bikes became the way to get from point A to B. First, cycling was accessible to everyone, and most especially those who actually rode bikes every day. Hint, there weren't many upper or middle class riders. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the riders then were working class, certainly the majority of them. The second thing, the money from sponsors, it was very real and very, very attractive to potential riders. Well, the, the, the companies that were backing these guys, they, I mean, cycling was going through a huge boom. I mean, not only in France, but uh, in, throughout Western Europe, in the, in the US as well. Think of the sport at the time as something like the French version of NASCAR. It was blue collar, was rough, and it had relatable heroes. And like NASCAR, the sport was a vehicle for selling vehicles. In cycling's case, the choice of the working class, a bicycle. So competition between manufacturers was, was huge to sell, to sell bikes, to sell products associated with bikes, tires, and, and other things that, that everybody used to, uh, to keep their bike going. Bicycle makers and tire companies poured money into the sport of cycling as a result. They were involved, sometimes a little too involved, in races. It wasn't unheard of for tire manufacturers to put tacks or nails on the road during a course. Their riders would be notified of exactly where the hazards would be. Rival companies' riders, however, would remain clueless about what lay ahead. So when you get to that point, make sure you're on whichever side of the road was clear and, and you'll get by and you'll be okay. And all their guys would shoot through and rival riders would, would get snagged up, they'd get punctures, they'd have to stop and put new tubes on one or whatever. And at the end of the race, they kind of, you'd see the papers in the next couple of days. And uh, there'd be, these manufacturers would be crowing about what they'd done. Oh, so-and-so, our first six, first six riders to finish this race, no punctures, riding on our brand of tires, they're fantastic, everybody else punctured. Cheating was a feature, not a bug of cycling becoming a professional sport. So was earning actual money for the talent. A racer could earn a real living, especially if that person were a working-class athlete whose idea of financial comfort was relatively modest. For Garan, the math was easy. All he had to do was be in absolute agony for a few hours. In return, Garan or other top riders would see substantial sums of money. When I wrote about that tour, I, I think I managed to work out that he was probably earning, in um, during the three or four weeks of the Tour de France, about two years' worth of salary for, for the average worker. So he was, he was earning a lot of money. The agony of cycling existed before the Tour de France ever did. For instance, Garand's first win as a professional came in a 24-hour race in Paris in 1893. Garand survived cycling 435 miles over 24 hours through brutal determination, a high pain tolerance, and by eating and drinking all of the following over the course of a race. A. Lots of strong red wine. B. 19 liters of hot chocolate. C. 7 liters of tea. D. 8 cooked eggs. E. 
a mix of coffee and champagne. F, 45 cutlets. G, five liters of tapioca. H, two kilos of rice. And most importantly, I, oysters. In retrospect, maybe cycling wasn't a very sane or healthy sport from the start. Still, Peter Cawson says Garan flourished in the new cutthroat world of professional cycling. He was, he was winning big races and making good money. And he'd, he'd certainly, he'd learned a lot of tricks. I mean, they were all pretty canny at, uh, at knowing how to get the better of each other, how to get around the rules. And uh, I mean, like I say, streetwise, I guess, and, and, and just very, very sharp on, on how to get ahead. Garand was one of its earliest stars in France when a struggling sports newspaper needed something to turn its fortunes around. It built the bike race to end all races and set up Garand for his biggest moment yet. The first Tour de France was essentially a newspaper promotion. Le Auto, France's second most popular newspaper, was lagging behind Le Velo in sales. Desperate to turn around the paper's sagging numbers, editor Henri de Grange heard an idea from one of his young writers, Géo Lefebvre, a bike race unlike any had seen before, a six-day ordeal around the perimeter of France. The first tour was only five stages long. Only is doing some heavy lifting here. Only means a race that was still 1,500 miles long, held at the height of summer in July, and run across a geographical area roughly the size of the state of Texas. The riders used 30-pound bikes, single-gear bikes, no less. The tour banned geared bikes until 1937. The roads were garbage, the heat was oppressive, and the accommodations and food were appalling. Safety was an issue during the day. At night, it was non-existent. Did I mention that for the first tours, they raced at night, too? Peter Cawson says the huge distances and spaces involved meant the race would be ungovernable from the start. A group might only have five or, or ten riders in it maximum during the race because it all just became so split up on, on dirt roads that they were riding on over huge distances up to 300 miles for a stage, sometimes, well, pretty much all the time through the middle of the night or starting in the middle of the night. And uh, I mean, in those circumstances, there were no cards for, um, or very few cards for, for the judges and the officials to move around the race on. They were sort of dependent on traveling by train. To make things worse, there would be a financial incentive not just for riders to cheat, but for anyone involved to let it happen. Why they were cheating from the start, I mean, certainly the, the, the money side of it had a, a lot to do with it. There was lots of money to be made by the riders. There was certainly a huge amount of money to be made by the manufacturers. And those manufacturers took out ads in the papers. Papers like La Auto, the sports newspaper behind the whole race in the first place. Peter Cossens again. A lot of the organizers went, went along with it because um, they needed money from the, uh, from the manufacturers to, uh, in terms of, I mean, a lot of them were newspapers that were organizing races at that stage, as, as was the case with the first Tour de France. And of course, they wanted these, these companies to be advertising in their newspapers. So they didn't really want to highlight the fact that a lot of riders were cheating. The end result? A system with no incentive to blow the whistle on anyone, and little ability to do so in the first place. And they, I mean, if, if they did that, people might stop buying the paper, 
people might stop advertising in the paper. And when it was just kind of a merry-go-round of, of money, I guess, that, that was, was behind it all. And I guess there's that basic thing of in pretty much any situation, somebody is going to look to gain an advantage on, on, a, on a rival. The tour was set up for a kind of mayhem from the start. An impossible race so painful that its riders would do anything to get it over with so lucrative its riders would do anything to win, and built so that a blindness to the rules was not only encouraged, but baked into the race from the start. It was perfect for a ruthless competitor, like someone who did not ever want to go back to sweeping chimneys for a living again. The tour began on July 1st in Paris. Stage one covered 293 miles to Lyon. Uh, just by comparison, the longest stages in the 2017 tour stretched to around 130 miles per stage. There were 21 stages in last year's tour, sure, but they were done with ultralight bikes, support teams, and the best equipment and technology available. The 1903 Tour de France ran its first stage on fixed-wheel bikes on 19th century roads without lights or aid stations. The riders started in the afternoon. The first riders bailed on the tour at mile marker 31, with the rest racing through the evening and into the dark. Remember, they ran in the dark, without lights. Maurice Garin won the first stage by arriving in Lyon sometime around 9 the next morning, if what he was doing could be considered winning anything. Garin had his lead, and he was not going to let it go. The race ran as it does now, on cumulative time across all stages. Getting a lead early was everything. And though Garan would not win the next three stages, he kept a healthy margin between him and other riders. Some abandoned the race altogether. Others kept on, numbing the pain with a tried-and-true cycling antidote for the pain and boredom of long road rides. A potent mix of ether and red wine. At the start of Stage 5, a modest 264-mile jaunt from Bordeaux to Nantes, Garan was still in the lead, Garan and three other riders settled into a rhythm. The foursome should have gotten along nicely. Peter Cossens again. In a, at the front, there were four, four riders in the group, and the other three guys with him were all, were all members of, of his same team, La Française. So although they weren't riding together, they kind of had an understanding. However, that understanding that Garan would win the stage wasn't agreed on by everyone. And Garan's understanding was, and he, he told the other three guys... He said, I'm going to win this stage. He was already leading the race. He'd already won a stage, but he wanted to win another stage. And he said, oh, I'm going to win this stage. Enter one Ferdinand Augereau, someone who definitely did not have an understanding of this understanding. Ferdinand Augereau, who uh, had started quite slowly, but he kind of worked his way up the overall standings and was, was doing very well by that point in the race. He just said to Garen, well, no, why should, I, why should I let you win? And Garen said, well, I'm the leader. You've got to do what I say. Now, remember that this is not a team sport yet. Garan was not a team leader. No one had to do what he said. Later in the Tour de France, there will be grand tactics between members of teams and riders working together to get one member of the team into position to win. There will be assigned roles, specialization, and teamwork. But this is 1903. This is every man for himself, in theory. 
or at least until Maurice Garin starts cutting some kind of deal with the other riders in his group. Then Garin instructed one of the other two guys to ride off ahead of them and throw his bike down in the road in front of Ogero and, and cause the guy to, to crash, which he did, and um, he fell to the floor, kind of had to pick himself up. You heard that correctly. In response to a challenge from another rider, Maurice Garin convinced someone to ride ahead and turn his bike into a rolling barricade. Ogero went flying and crashed to the ground. Garan and the rest of his group sped away, leaving Ogero crawling in the dirt. At this point in the story, I'll be honest. I see where both people are coming from here. On one side, there's Maurice Garan, who, after 10 years of professional cycling, has to think, who is anyone to challenge me, much less this guy, who hasn't come from sweeping chimneys and winning races and being sold for a wheel of cheese by his own parents? Okay, least long-term for a wheel of what was probably incredibly top-shelf French cheese. It sounds to me like Garin thought he was the man and was the kind of savage, pitiless guy who wins at a lot of levels in professional sport. He sounds a lot like Michael Jordan, someone who went out of his way to embarrass and outright ruin people who crossed him on the court. Or maybe more accurately, he sounds a lot like Lance Armstrong who went even further in hounding people who tried to out him as a doping champion in his prime. I also get Ogero's perspective. He's ridden the same thousand miles as Garant. He's been living on ether and red wine and bad water. He's tired, he's hot, he's in pain. But Ogero clearly felt good enough to challenge and even outright win. And he wasn't just going to let someone win after all that, was he? Peter Cossens takes us back to the race where Ogero wasn't going to let Garan win, even after crashing. By that stage, Garan and his two mates had, had ridden off and, and left him behind. Anyway, Ogero went charging off after them and, and caught them again. After a thousand miles and a horrible crash and being ganged up on by his fellow riders, no one would have blamed Ferdinand Ogero for quitting. Again, they had, the, had, they had the same conversation again and he said he wasn't going to quit. Anyone with a heart at that point would have let Ogero race, right? Maurice Garand didn't do that. The conversation went about the same way it went the first time. And uh, anyway, the next time, and again, one of these two guys was instructed by Garand to ride up the, the road. And uh, the next time, uh, Ogero crashed again. He was, he was taken down. And Garand thought, well, I'm not going to let him get up again this time. Never, ever let it be said that Maurice Garand was not a hands-on professional. They went over to his bike and literally jumped up and down on his front wheel, smashing all the smokes, spokes to pieces. I mean, rendering the whole thing com completely unusable. And then he and his two mates rode off again and into the distance. Remember when I said this was French NASCAR? This is pure NASCAR right down to actually trashing your rival's ride to keep him out of the race. Maurice Garin is the French Dale Earnhardt. He wrecked his opponents. He had big endorsements. He even had a mustache, though his was full and bushy and brushed out all Frenchily. Garin is often running down the road towards victory. Augereau, meanwhile, is standing somewhere on the side of the road between Bordeaux and Nantes. Cossens described the scene in his book. Augereau's bike is trashed. He's bruised. He's battered. 
His race is done. Or at least any sensible person's race would be done. I mean, to his credit, Augereau, he was standing there, I guess, kind of almost in the middle of nowhere. There just happened to be somebody standing there at the side of the road with a bike. And the rules allowed at that time for, for you to ride on it on any bike. So he, this guy said, well, I saw what happened here. Have my bike. You can chase after them. So Don't, Ferdinand. Don't. Just, just don't. But unfortunately, um, the bike let him down this time before he, he managed to catch them. <sighs> Ferdinand Ogero, after getting trashed twice by Maurice Garan and his extremely skinny gang of cycling goons, got up and finished the last leg of a 264-mile Tour de France stage on someone else's bike. In the history of the Tour de France, Augereau played the part of the noble loser first. Garin, on the other hand, won the stage, even though he didn't need it. He could have kept Augereau at bay overall and ceded some ground. Instead, one of the best riders of his time cheated. Cheating like that, of course... You wouldn't see it nowadays, but nobody saw it then because it was just happening in the middle of nowhere. Nobody could witness it, or there might be people witnessing it, but uh, it would never or very rarely get reported. Most of it was missed, so uh, all kinds of shenanigans are going on. Maurice Garin won the first Tour de France. If the race wasn't already doomed to flaunt the rules forever, then Maurice Garin sealed its fate in its first run. Then again, maybe there is some justice here. The next year, Maurice Garin was attacked by masked men in the opening stage, then by an angry mob in another, and finally finished first, only to be later disqualified, along with the next three finishers, for unspecified incidents of cheating. One rumor? They were taking trains to set good times, skipping whole stages. After all this, be honest. It sounds a lot better than doing any of this, because that's where the Tour de France puts someone. It is so extreme and so brutal that it stretches the definition of what could be considered reasonable. I'm not going to stand here and say that cheating is okay. But in the Tour de France's case, I get it. I don't condone it, but I get it. Because it's absurd. And absurdity begets absurdity, especially when we're talking about a race that stretches the bounds of human endurance and pain tolerance further than almost any other sporting event. Put another way, sell me for a wheel of cheese and then put me in the world's most brutal cycling race and at mile 900, you know what's going to make sense to me? Anything that gets me further down the road and in first place. Try that. Until you cycle a thousand miles in the saddle of a guy who got traded for dairy products by his parents, you can't possibly understand or judge Maurice Garan. Jonathan Hirsch is our show's producer. Nishat Kurwa is Vox Media's executive producer of audio. Thanks also to Elena Bergeron and Jen Holmes. I'm Spencer Hall, and I'll see you soon.